So, Jay, how did Betsy Braddock get her original body back? Was it a Krakoa Resurrection Protocols thing? Oh, no, no, Miles. Although that is how Quanon got her body back. See, a while ago, Betsy was sort of killed in Madripoor. Sort of killed? Body got destroyed, mind stuck around. Fortunately, given her skills, she was able to... What, possess someone? Build a new body from scratch. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 330 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to something awesome. Yeah, so we realized when we were, we were looking at the show that as of not this, but uh, the last episode, Matt Hunter, our producer, has edited... A full half of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which, since it's our seventh anniversary this month, means three and a half years of show. I mean, goddamn, like, we already knew Matt was our longest-lived producer, and, uh, but more than half the show, more than everybody else combined? Wow, Matt, thank you for, um, putting up with us for this long, and for being a genuinely rad producer and editor. I want to clarify that, to the best of our knowledge, our previous producers are still alive, they're just not producing the show. Uh, right, exactly. But if you're not working on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, can you truly be said to be living? Yes. Well, that's a relief. That would be terrifying otherwise, like existentially and otherwise. I mean, all but about three of the people in the world would be pretty screwed. Mm, I'm not in favor of that. The world's a rough enough place these days. But uh, seriously, Matt, thank you so much for being the other third of Jan Miles Explain the X-Men, despite not having your, your name in the title. Like, we could not do this without you. We appreciate your work so, so much. You're definitely the good third. <laughs> yes. Uh, wait, so which one of us is evil and which is neutral? Wait, never mind. I mean, I think we know. <laughs> yup. Well, let us move on to uh, Matt continuing his his streak of, of producing a horrifying number of these episodes by making another one. Right now. Hooray! So this is going to be another X-Men uh, episode, specifically. You say as if our show were not, you know, about the X-Men. Well, right. But usually it's about, you know, factors, or forces, or calibers. It's decreasingly common to have it be about men, some of whom are women. God, it just gets more confusing, doesn't it? It surely does. Uh, but yes, as has been the case recently, we are going to be covering some adjective lists, we're going to be covering some uncanny, and we're going to be covering what happened previously on X-Men. So, times have been really tough at the Xavier Institute, and Professor X is feeling it. One of the things harshing Chuck's mellow is that his attempted rehabilitation of the supervillain Sabretooth failed somewhat messily. Yeah, after recovering from a clawbotomy from Wolverine, Sabretooth manipulated Boom Boom into breaking him loose, and then nearly eviscerated Psylocke when she tried to stop him from escaping. Meanwhile, various computer screens and secondary characters have been mumbling the word onslaught for a while now. Now, we know, because we're from the future, that Onslaught is the combination of Magneto's rage and Charles Xavier's repressed evil side. However, as far as we can tell, no one else associated with the X-Line was entirely sure of that at this point. 
Oh boy, let's dive in. But not quite yet, because first we have some astonishingly excellent ninja bullshit to tell you about. Right, that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 329, Warriors of the Ebon Knight. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell and Jeff Loeb, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And Jay, this two-part story that this issue starts, I love it so much. It is so ridiculous, and it makes me so happy. It feels very Doctor Strange, which is appropriate given that Doctor Strange in fact appears in it. Yeah, and it also serves as a showcase for Joe Matarera's very manga-rific style in that it is about a lot of manga-rific stuff, including the aforementioned ninja bullshit. So much ninja bullshit. So Wolverine has dragged Archangel to the Little Asia area of Manhattan. I'm not a New Yorker, but I looked it up and, Jay, Little Asia isn't actually a place, is it? It is definitely not a place, and I think the use of it as a made-up place pretty much speaks to the level of cultural fluency that this story is going to have in general. I feel a little bit more okay about that than about some of the Cheyenne stuff in uh, in X-Factor, because at least the mystical ninja stuff in this story, as far as I can tell, has nothing to do with any actual historical or spiritual practices aside from the word ninja. Yeah, I think this is also sketchy as hell. I guess so, but uh, it's it's just so much fun, I have to love it anyway. But the reason that Wolverine has dragged Archangel out here is not just to have somewhat raised eyebrow-tacular conversations about race. Archangel is Psylocke's boyfriend, of course. Psylocke is at death's door thanks to, uh, you know, getting clawed a whole bunch in her important parts by Sabretooth. And Wolverine is pretty sure that the answer to healing Psylocke a friend of his as well, of course, is here in Little Asia. Because, as we have learned from Marvel Comics, Asia, the country, is generally awash with the mystic arts, as Wolverine can here attest. She don't need medicine, kid. Medicine ain't what turned her into a ninja, was it? And medicine ain't gonna save her, Warren. You and me and a heap full of dumb luck is all that's gonna save her. So I actually kind of feel like I want to talk about the racism thing a little bit more right now. I'm sorry, I, I know I, I said the stuff and then stopped, but I, I feel like recording this as we currently are and you know, the first Monday of April in 2021 when there's a shit ton of anti-Asian hate crime happening in the United States, it's kind of worth talking about how the kind of intense othering that this is really, really reinforces racism even when it's cool stuff. That's a fair point. And I think that's something worth keeping in mind as we go through the story and as you're listening, listeners, just because it's really easy to overlook if you're reading this stuff as, you know, a white American. And it's important and it matters. And the idea that 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 an entire population, first of all, the idea of homogenizing an entire continent, but second, of homogenizing an entire continent continent as distinctly not like us is a really critical part of the kind of dehumanization that's going on right now. And it's something that it's really important, I think, to read critically for. Yeah, um, I, I, I can definitely see that in this story. And I mean, certainly in a lot of fiction in general, certainly in the Marvel Universe in general. And, you know, that's been better. That's been worse. I, for me, this is 
maybe somewhere in the middle? Hard to say. I, I mean, I, I think it's kind of clear where I'm standing on this. And, and for me, the, the a little Asia starts off with a bad enough taste in my mouth that, that the rest of the stuff only kind of lands worse on top of that. Well, entirely reasonable. Larger context aside, let's talk a little bit more about what's going on here. And specifically, let's talk about the creepy, mysterious spies watching our two main characters. Okay, first of all, the first sense we get that something is off is one of the characters on the sign on the place that they going that they go into peeling itself off the neon sign and skittering away, which is a visual I deeply love. Oh man, seriously. I think part of that is that neon pink is so often like an energy color within superhero comics, like it can represent energy blasts or psychic energy. And so the idea of a pink neon sign being actually composed of little animatable letters in a language is freaking rad. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you see a lot with changing signs in fantasy and in horror, but you rarely see one with with it, that involves, like, intelligent components, and I, I, I really enjoy that twist. It kind of reminds me of some of the demonic stuff from way back in Inferno. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. But okay, let's go back to this whole thing where even though Betsy was just cut up real bad, they need to use magic to heal her. So does that mean that, like, if she cuts her finger while slicing a bagel, they need to bring in a first-level wizard to cast Mending? I mean, what's going on here? Yes, that is what it means. Well, at least it's only a cantrip. You can cast it for free. It seems really bizarre to me, though, that because someone has had some mystical shit go down in their life, they therefore are functionally immune to modern medicine. Yeah, but you know, okay, so one of my favorite of my own quotes, and I feel strange and immodest about saying this, is something that I often will use to sign, like, zines or whatever that listeners buy at conventions, and I'm going to repeat myself here and say... It doesn't have to make sense if it's awesome. And I think that's how I'm going to sum up this entire plot line, because it is ridiculous, does not stand up to logical scrutiny, and it's awesome. Fair enough. So our main characters in this arc are Wolverine and Archangel, and that makes sense for a couple of reasons. Uh, in terms of the reason they're both on this mission, well, we already established Archangel and Psylocke are in love. They're in a romantic relationship. But remember, Wolverine and Psylocke have quite the history as well. They were teammates back in the Outback era, before Betsy's body swap slash alteration. And in the non-team era, when the X-Men weren't really a team, Wolverine, Jubilee, and the freshly transformed Psylocke were going around as a trio of heroes as well, and dealing with the fact that all of their friends, as far as they knew, were dead. And I really like the acknowledgement of that. Like, I know we always get Wolverine in the stories because he's popular and everybody loves him, but this is a story where it absolutely makes sense to have Wolverine be one of the primary people trying to help Psylocke out. There's also the fact that Wolverine and Archangel have history of their own. I think it all started in the classic X-Men number one backup story that Chris Claremont added into Giant Size X-Men number one, where Wolverine was flirting with Jean and Cyclops didn't like that and Archangel also didn't like that, well, Angel back then. But we saw them clash as well in Inferno. We saw them clash in the Extinction Agenda. Like, they have not been great friends, so it's kind of fun to see that friction between the two of them, even though they have an aligned goal. Ah, uh, friction. <laughs> yeah. Alright, internet. Um, I would say make a bunch of porn of this, but, but I'm sure you already did. 
I I trust in in the the good folk of Ao3. I'm I'm sure there's something out there. We believe in you. We always have. Anyway, what Wolverine and Archangel are doing at this point is sitting down in the shop now with a missing character on its sign, but sitting down for a cup of tea, or at least a cup of what is ostensibly tea, because Wolverine takes one sip and throws his cup, and the steam from it pours out and coalesces into a giant ninja with mantis arms, which is pretty great. Oh, and it's done using this, like, rudimentary mid-90s CG, and I love it so much. It... Let's just think about this. Okay, so the idea of having a ninja made of the steam from the tea someone is drinking, that's actually a really good way to assassinate somebody. That's nice and subtle. But this thing is not subtle at all! Oh yeah, no, not remotely. It is It is gigantic and ridiculous. You mentioned the the primitive CGI, and one of the things I noticed in this issue is you also see photo backgrounds pretty frequently. You do, yeah. Um, there's a scene, and we'll get to the Doctor Strange stuff later. Technically, it happens before this in the issue. But yeah, there's a scene of Doctor Strange flying over Manhattan that has this great photo background, and it looks freaking cool. And I know that's something that you and I have not always agreed on, right? So I have really mixed feelings about this, and I don't think that either the photo background or the CG works fantastically well in this issue. I think the photo background works a little better. But something I do really enjoy is watching artists experiment with the new technology that they had access to and try to incorporate it into storytelling and sort of the things that people tried doing early on and the ways that's evolved over time. Like, I love tracking that stuff. Oh, completely agree. I mean, I remember talking to my dad on an episode of our show ages ago at this point, although I think Matt still produced it. Um, And one of the things he mentioned was that he was so blown away back in the Silver Age when Jack Kirby was doing the photo incorporation in old Fantastic Four issues. Mm. So Wolverine somehow knows that the Steam Ninja is vulnerable to metal. Don't worry about it. Just go with it. No, you know, because Steam is weak against metal. Obviously. I mean, is this like a Pokemon type weakness kind of deal? It's like rock, paper, scissors, but way more complicated? No. No, no, Steam is just weak against metal. Oh, okay. Any Wolverine can tell you that. Obviously. And we have quite a few Wolverines. Unfortunately, this one is fresh out of metal, thanks to one Eric Max Magnus Magneto Eisenhart Lenger. Thankfully, he brought a dude who's got plenty of his own. Right, because Archangel, of course, has his super snazzy metal wings, courtesy of Apocalypse. Unfortunately, that just cuts the steam ninja into lots of tiny little steam ninjas. Have I mentioned I like this story? It's a lot of fun. It's silly. And again, the the logic and the magic in it are very Doctor Strange feeling. Well, this part's very Wolverine because to stop the problem, Wolverine just impales some random lady in the corner. Random little old lady, too. Like, it's not, it's, it's not, it's, it, it looks so much worse. And then he just reaches into her torso and pulls out a tiny man who was hiding in the form of this little old lady in the corner. Yep. Kind of brings us full circle to Magneto, though, because remember that that issue where he was trying to find the world's tiniest man? Oh, yeah, because he had to send him into a tiny spaceship that he thought might have weapons in it. That was so much fun. God, the Bronze Age was something. (laughs) Yeah. So, this tiny old man is Gomor the Ancient. 
he's just sort of in there. He's kind of a caricature visually, but Joe Matarero really excels at people with expressive faces, and this guy's face is expressive to the point of, like, Looney Tunes level, and it's I just enjoy watching him emote. Gomer, like everyone else in the Marvel Universe, knows Logan from some time in the distant past, and in fact, he had set up the steam ninja who was vulnerable to metal as a test, basically thinking, well... Wolverine will make short work of this guy, not knowing that Wolverine is, of course, down his metal. Gomer must not have gotten the annual Christmas newsletter. You mean Marvel Age? I mean Marvel Age. That is kind of cool, though. Like, I like the idea that you could tailor a test slash trap specifically to somebody, not realizing that the incredibly dense storylines of the Marvel Universe might have altered the whole nature of the thing. It's kind of a flawed test, though, because, like, there's cutlery around. Oh, that's true. That's true. You could just throw a spoon at it right in the eyeball. Yeah, or someone could use a sword. Most weapons are made of metal. Yeah, uh, I guess it could be um, could be less vulnerable, though. I mean, Bloodscream is vulnerable only to metal not forged by men. I love Bloodscream. I just wanted to mention him. I think about him sometimes, you know, at night, trying to get to sleep, and then I think, oh yeah, Bloodscream. He's out there, being a ghost pirate. <sighs> living the dream. I'm living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Logan is looking for a pint of Crimson Dawn from the Ebon Vein. Does, does that sound like a sex thing? Specifically, I'm thinking of the red-slash-black guild from Ravnica City of Guilds in Magic the Gathering. The red-black guild is the cult of Rakdos, and, um, yeah, that, that sounds icky and sexual enough to be their style. They're pretty weird. Okay. The D&D game I'm in online right now is set in the Ravnica setting, so I got guilds on the mind. Color-coded guilds. I see. Wolverine convinces Gomer to go on this suicide mission to the Ebon Vein with them through various threats, you know, the whole one claw, two claw, do you want the third claw thing. And sure enough, Gomer joins the party. But he's not the only one, because guess who takes this opportunity to show up? That's right, it's... Doctor Strange, he randomly shows up too, and he joins the party. Well, in spirit anyway. So, we mentioned Doctor Strange was in the earlier part of the issue. He was in his Sanctum Sanctorum scrying on Wolverine and Archangel through this badass scrying pool with like a bunch of eyeballs and the stone all around it. I thought that was mud. Oh, well, maybe it's mud, but the point is there are eyeballs everywhere, and that's just rad. Also mouths. Strange's rationale for joining up with our heroes is interestingly phrased. The X-Men are in need of my catastrophic magic, whether they realize it or not. Wait a minute, your catastrophic magic? I mean, okay, yes, but... So I looked this up because I was really confused. Like, was Doctor Strange just being sardonic and shit-talking his own abilities? And according to some random dictionary website on the web, catastrophic can mean... Involving a sudden and large-scale alteration in state. Which, uh, okay, I mean, is he gonna turn Wolverine into a coffee table or something? Yes. Yes, he is. So I want to talk a little bit about Doctor Strange here, though. Because we've seen a lot of different kind of iterations of Doctor Strange over the years, and this one is pretty much pure occult knowledge and badass. And yeah, he's okay, he's fun, he plays a necessary role in this story, but I gotta say... 
my Doctor Strange sweet spot is is definitely on the powerful and knowledgeable enough that he could casually end universes, but probably also needs to be reminded to wear pants. Well, that's why he's got Wong. I mean, that's like half of Wong's job. But I completely agree. Like, by far my favorite Doctor Strange era, and I'm not saying there aren't other great ones, there are, is the relatively recent Jason Aaron, Chris Pacello run of Doctor Strange, where Doctor Strange is just bizarre. He has messed himself up, and he doesn't really remember what normal is like. It is so much fun, and often very gross. Pacello's art is so good for it. Right, and when he's in other books, like, so often he does what he does here, which is basically just pop in and be like, so we're going on a quest, you need me. And it sits so much better if he's just kind of like three degrees left of reality and thinks that that's a regular thing to do. Well, this kind of makes me think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, too, because the Doctor Strange movie was, I mean, it had some cool effects. There were some neat aspects to it. But like Doctor Strange himself was kind of boring in it. He was basically just magic Tony Stark. But when you see him in Thor Ragnarok, for instance, when he's already fully ensconced in that world of weird shit, he's so much more fun. When, like, the entire world is a straight man because he's just so out there and doesn't realize that's unusual. Yeah, and that's the Doctor Strange I pretty much always want to see. Agreed. Well, the new movie is going to be him and Wanda, and it's called In the Multiverse of Madness, so here's hoping. Fingers crossed. That brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 330, Quest for the Crimson Dawn. Hey, we're covering number 330 in episode 330. Neat. My god, who could have predicted it? Probably Doctor Strange. This is written by Scott Lobdell and Jeff Loeb, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Bucolato and Team Bucci, or Bucci? I have no idea how to pronounce that, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So back at the mansion... We're back to the person who's the center of this story, even if she plays a very passive role, the reason that the whole quest is taking place, and that is Betsy, who remains comatose. Gambit is watching over her at this point, and remembering that right before she got, you know, cut into little Betsy bits, she had been probing his mind, realizing that there was some kind of dark secret in there. And when her condition suddenly plummets and her vitals get, you know, less vital— briefly considers letting his secret die with her, but only briefly, because come on, it's Gambit. He's a scoundrel, not a villain. And the narration, I think, sums that up pretty well. For, in the final analysis, no matter what he was before he came to live with them, today, Gambit is an X-Man. Most days, in fact. You know, I've really come around on Gambit. I was kind of annoyed by his skeezy ass when we started the podcast, but... He's got so much heart. I mean, I'm not saying he's not skeezy, but he's a good guy. You know, I think you summarized it just perfectly a moment ago that he's a scoundrel, not a villain. Yeah. So there you go. Gambit, you can put that on your CV or your business card or, I don't know, tattoo it on your butt. Yeah, that's what he calls a CV. (laughs) My CV, mon ami. Or would it be save? Well, anyway, let's talk about Betsy's, um outfit so we mentioned she was nearly eviscerated by saber tooth he stabbed her in the gut and you've got all your organs in there so that didn't work out very well but right now all of her bandages are covering her arms and the very top of her chest 
and that leaves her naked from the breasts down. I mean, she's she's under a sheet aside from her very visible cleavage, but like later on, she'll start start convulsing due to magic stuff. And yeah, she's just totally totally naked under there with her bandages that don't actually cover the area where she was injured. That's because the boobs are where the life is. Oh, okay. I always thought that was the liver because it you know makes you live. No. Oh, well, this was actually addressed in a article from April 1st very recently on Women Write About Comics called Meanwhile on Planet Boob, this very scene from this very comic. That's a fun article. April Fool's Day, obviously, but also Women Write About Comics is a really, really good site, and you should check it out for, like, their other articles, too. So how did they explain the situation? Uh, their take was that the soft-weighted blanket, you know, uh, would allow her to heal properly without restraining those perfectly spherical breasts. Yeah, that's the other thing. They don't really look like breasts. As we know, Betsy was transformed magically, so really anything's on the table. Well, there are defi- there's definitely something on the table. But yeah, yeah, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna. This is this is just gonna be the entire visual companion. This episode, it's just gonna be like this entirely stupid, stupid fucking picture, stupid series of pictures, actually, because it's consistent throughout the issue. It it is, but man, I really love Joe Matarera's art, and honestly, I mean, I know we need to judge people by our modern standards, but at the same time, it was the '90s. Everybody else was doing that too. No, this is just goofy. This is this is dubious storytelling, and just. I, this is this is not judging by modern standards, Miles. It was just as dumb back then. I suppose that's true. Yeah, I, uh, I, I had less of a critical eye in the '90s and um, a, a bit more of an agenda when it came to you know breasts. I was I was a young teenager. I I, I make no uh, no apologies. For to to once again be the the downer half of the show. I I gotta say for for all that this is legitimately pretty hilarious. It also definitely pushes my buttons um, in terms of, like, hypersexualizing women who are severely injured or dead thing. That, that is a whole thing. It's true. It's true. Just call her Rei Ayanami. Uh, anyway, it's mission time. Since Wolverine and Archangel are going someplace sacred, what with all the magic and the ebon vein, they're supposed to dress accordingly. And boy, do they ever. So, Archangel is in a fairly standard gi. It's like a white ninja outfit, you know, little ninja-esque, so alright. Wolverine, on the other hand, appears to have gotten geared up for the goth club. He is wearing a pair of harem pants, a wide sash, and a fishnet tank top. As is traditional in places of mystical power. I have no idea what the hell is going on here, but it's amazing. Like, he really, really looks fully set to go to a late 90s goth club. Okay, as someone who also has a lot of body hair like Logan canonically does, net shirts are not the most comfortable thing to wear. I mean, it's not as bad as, like, Speedball wearing that penance outfit with all the spikes on the inside of it, but I'm not saying it's a whole lot better. Miles, he's trying to respect the traditions of a sacred place. That's also why he's traded in his standard cigars for clove cigarettes and so forth. Ah, I see, I see. Getting some assemblage 23 as he he walks into the temple. Just doing nothing but shooting corpse survivors all night. Yes, listeners, I realize that corpse survivors are not a shot. That's what makes it funny. That's our Logan. So, Gomer the Ancient has taken Wolverine and Archangel and Doctor Strange, who's dressed the same because, you know, it's like a little black dress. That cloak looks good anywhere. It does, though. It really does. 
right? Gomer has taken them all to a warehouse full of masks, which uh, also includes a little Easter egg in the corner of Sunfire's Age of Apocalypse mask, which is kind of cool. Warren remains skeptical of the whole situation, and Gomer is quick to step up and assure the frustrated Archangel of his bona fides. Take it from me. One doesn't become Gomer the Ancient by keeping one's eyes clenched tightly. First and foremost, you have to be named Gomer. Then, you have to get really, really old. Then... Good job, buddy. Good job. Suddenly, ninjas! Out of nowhere! Oh, that's not true. They're out of shadow. And in fact, they're made of they, shadow. They are. They're these spindly, ragged shadow ninjas, and they look really cool. So the whole shadow thing will become a big deal with later Crimson Dawn stuff. This plotline actually does continue in a pretty major way. But honestly, I think it's just that Joe Matarera wanted to draw awesome things, and so this is an arc about the things he considered awesome. Reasonable. One of the awesome things that we get to see is an enormous paper dragon mask um, whose mouth they head through and into a fiery stone path in what strange terms the netherscape. It's never really explained what that means, but it's a pretty cool word. I mean, I kind of want to call my house that. It's a super cool word. Anyway... Warren's wing injuries are fucking him up pretty bad, because during the fight with Sabretooth, one of his wings was torn half apart. Doctor Strange is, you know, a doctor, hence the name. He's also strange, hence the name. And he refuses to just let this guy work and fight himself to literal death. That would be the hypocritical oath. But Warren convinces him that it's okay, because Betsy is the first real happiness he's ever found, and he, he, just, he just wants to... To save her, and Strange is like, yeah, okay, you know, it, it may go against all of my instincts, but I do appreciate the importance of, of continuing a narrative, so. Exactly. And so they continue that narrative all the way to a guy named Tar, the Proctor of the Crimson Dawn. He's a big gray dude in dramatic red robes, and he's kind of a dick. Yeah, he just hands out their blue books and doesn't give them any kind of instructions. He's annoyed by people always asking him for things, so he kills Gomer the Ancient and sends his little neon character spiders after Wolverine. How cool would it be to have, have those as friends? Oh, it would be awesome, especially if you could just make them. Like, you just, you know, write a cool poem or a line from a song on a big piece of poster board and pink highlighters, and then the letters jump off and start skittering around and maybe singing the song whose lyrics you were just writing. Anyway... Wolverine fights the, the neon minions, as, as Tar calls them, and distracts them, distracts Tar, which gives Doctor Strange some time to pull a little golden Psylocke out of Warren's chest. As one does. The problem, you see, is that while they are at the Ebon Vein, which contains the elixir of the Crimson Dawn, Psylocke's not here, and she has to drink it, and she's actively dying as we speak. Well, as, as they speak. I mean, it's in the past, as, as we speak, and it's also in, in fiction. But the point is, that's not great. So, strange figures, alright, I'm gonna pull the very representation of her trust and love for you, Warren, out of your heart. And it's gonna look like a cool little action figure. Although one of the ones that isn't very well articulated, so it just sort of sits there, so it's just more of an in-action figure. And I'm going to cram it in to the Crimson Dawn vessel. First, 
thing, isn't it technically a piece of her soul with which she entrusted Warren? Just by virtue of loving and trusting him? I, I guess so, yeah. I mean, when you get to this level of mystical nonsense, it's hard to really understand the details, but the point is, Warren and Betsy, sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S mystical bullshit. And second, I know it's Crimson Dawn, but I have to remind myself repeatedly every time I say it, because based on its structure and just idioms, I keep on almost saying Crimson Tide. <laughs> I just keep thinking of the Crimson Dawn from Star Wars. I just finished watching Clone Wars and it was really good. But uh, yeah, they're they're criminals. Anyway, this brings Betsy back from the brink of death where she had been hovering back at stately Xavier Manor. And the Crimson Dawn is going to turn out to be a whole big fucking thing in X-Men in the next few years. It is. And the first sign we see of that, well read about that is that she now has a mark on her face that wasn't there before weirdly the art doesn't actually show the mark on her face everything is glowing red and the angles are weird so we just hear about it and that should be a pretty climactic thing right like it's the visual representation of the success of this whole quest but we'll see it later the point is it's a big cool pointy red tattoo over one of her eyes kind of like a lot of people had in the age of apocalypse yeah, I wonder if this was supposed to be a sign that the Age of Apocalypse was sort of skittering toward this reality. I don't know. I mean, I would just figure that Joe Matarera did some of those types of character designs in AOA. He does this character design here, so I think he just likes cool face tattoos. So we are jumping entirely away from that storyline now to X-Men number 50. This is called Full Court Press. It's written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Cam Smith, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And it introduces us to a fellow named Post. Post is the Herald of Onslaught. Why does Onslaught get a Herald? The only thing I can think of is that one of the most famous big bads in the Marvel Universe, Galactus, has a Herald. And so given that they're playing Onslaught up as one of the greatest threats in the history of the Marvel Universe, of course he would have a Herald, too. I mean, Apocalypse doesn't have a Herald. No. I mean, that is weird. He's got Ozymandias. Ozymandias is kind of a Herald. Ozymandias is kind of his, his general, like, butler. You know what I think it is for Apocalypse, now that I think about it? Your Herald gives big speeches about how awesome you are, and Apocalypse gives his own speeches about how awesome he is. That is an excellent, excellent point. So, this is number 50, and as we know, that is a significant number. And that means a double-sized foil wraparound cover featuring a remarkably nude Wolverine. To be fair, that's accurate to the contents. There are a lot of remarkably semi-nude X-Men in this issue. Yeah, but Wolverine is, is, is pretty much down to skivvies on the cover. I mean, you know, he's got all that body hair. He's he's never that naked. That that wraparound foil body hair. Mm, that's right. So, this issue really brings us full on into the onslaught era in all of its confusing glory. And the X-Men are kind of confused too as it starts. Well, the X-Men are profoundly confused. We've got our team split into two groups. The first is Cyclops, Iceman, Storm, and Wolverine. They have all woken up somewhere unfamiliar, um, some 
field with some trees around it, varyingly severely injured. None of them remember how they got there. And also, their clothes are all mostly blown off, but like, they were before this issue started, and they don't remember what happened to make that happen, so I guess go ahead and have already taken a drink? That seems kind of unfair. I mean, I don't think the X-Men think this is very fair either. So, Wolverine has some degree of advantage here. He's got his super senses, which are dialed up to 11 ever since he lost his adamantium, and he is able to use them to scent out Post. This is a massive dude, made mostly of rocks, or apparently made mostly of rocks, or covered in rocks, who claims to be the Herald of Onslaught, but refuses to say who or what Onslaught is. Oh boy, so later on, Post will turn out to have been a dying soldier that Cable saved ages ago with a blood transfusion, but he hates Cable because there was techno-organic stuff in the blood, and so he got all, like, weird and techno-organic-y. He'll actually be a pretty major character in, in Cable's book. But yeah, for right now, he's just a big blue guy with these little, like, rocky silver scales all over his body. It looks like, I don't know, some kind of disease. Yeah, he's 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 all bumpy. Oh, to me it just looks like he's he's got some kind of exosuit or armor that's that's made of made of rocks. But he's also got some screens on him. Um and he he's he's videoing what's happening and transmitting it to Onslaught. This again is is weird as far as the Herald thing, because Heralds usually talk about who who their monarch is, who their 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 master is, what's coming. And this guy's just like, Yep, I'm the Herald of Onslaught. Gonna get some video. Maybe Post is just really bad at his job. He kinda seems it. So after a brief fight, he returns to invisibility. The X-Men are able to fake a fight and use it to lure him close before hitting him with all of their powers. Um, and they, in doing so, they knock away some of his, his sort of exoskeletal rocks, and he really, really looks like early Bronze Age Beast for a minute, which I thought was supposed to be significant, but apparently was an accident. Uh, yeah, he's even got that little, like, pointy hair on either side, the way that Beast and Wolverine and Star Fox and Quicksilver and Magneto and, like, everybody does. He is also onto their game. He manages to outfake their fake-out, and at this point he talks, or starts talking much more noticeably to me like Charles Xavier, who, not, who narrates the rest of the issue. He's reminiscing about the... X-Men's early lives, he's claiming he'll mourn the ones he's ostensibly killing. So, we of course know, like you said earlier, Jay, that Onslaught will be revealed to be essentially Charles Xavier with some evil Magneto thrown in. Xavier, of course, doesn't know this yet. At the time, I don't think the writers had this in mind. Like, we have Post here, who's supposed to be testing the X-Men by trying to kill them for his boss Onslaught and returning all the results to Onslaught. Okay, fine, I guess, although if he kills all the X-Men, then, uh, well, he's gonna stop getting any more data. But if Onslaught is Xavier, why would he need to test his X-Men? He's been doing that in the Danger Room for, like, a really long time. I guess you could say that's a, that's a twisted reflection of the Danger Room thing, maybe? Yeah, that's definitely how I would see it. So, I'd like to propose something here, Jay, regarding Onslaught. My biggest complaint about the Onslaught storyline is that it doesn't make any sense because it seems to just be a series of sloppy retcons as it goes. As a fan podcast for the entire X-Men franchise, 
I think we should try to make Onslaught make sense. Let's no-prize the hell out of this whole thing and try to make a cohesive story out of Onslaught. That's that's quite a commitment, Miles. I'm I'm not sure I can I can eth- I ethically can commit to that because I'm not sure it's even possible. I feel like we owe it to our listeners, we owe it to ourselves, and we owe it to Onslaught to try. The X-Men realize they can take posts down by attacking the environment they're in, which is this sort of empty forest-like place. For instance, Iceman freezes the ground, and uh, that, in fact, does injure Post, which I would say doesn't make sense, but let's just go ahead and say they're all on the astral plane, therefore everything is made of astral gunk, and it's all connected. So until I learned about the post-retcon, I actually was pretty firmly under the impression that the reason this was happening was that both Post and the environment existed in Xavier's mind, that they were both parts of the same entity. That could be kind of cool, yeah. So, well, here's something. So we know that Xavier has been monitoring all the mutants in the world through Cerebro, like that's how he found Firestar back in the day, or Kitty Pride or Dazzler. And we know that Post is a mutant, or at least has mutant stuff in his veins, so maybe Xavier subconsciously knew enough about Post that kind of like your dreams pull in all the random crap you've seen during the day, he pulled Post's uh, concept and appearance into this astral construction to test the X-Men as an echo of the many ways he's tested them in the danger room, and so it all makes sense. Works for me. All right, there we go. It's... No, I'm not even going to say that that's canon. That is not canon. I'm not going to take it that far. Yeah, if we make Onslaught make sense, we're going to need to accept that Onslaught makes sense solely in Earth-441, in our own little pocket corner. Exactly. So, back at the X-Ranch, apparently a party's not a party in this era without Gateway, and he shows up in Professor Xavier's bedroom. Hey... No, not not for that. He wants to teleport him away. So we saw a gateway teleport chamber away kind of recently, and it comes up in this issue that apparently he just then dropped chamber right back off shortly thereafter. And I would say maybe this was one writer, like, not knowing what to do with another writer's plot line, but it was the same writer! That was also a lobdal issue. I got nothing, man. Well, okay, so later, Beast implies that maybe Gateway was trying to get a psionic near Onslaught to detect him, but Onslaught didn't want to be detected, so he sent Chamber back. Like, maybe he couldn't influence Gateway to kill Chamber. So, uh, maybe it was that? Either way, Gateway is not able to teleport Xavier away because he is stopped by both Xavier's own resistance and by Bishop and Jean. And as you noted, Miles, Bishop in proper um, action guy form is firing two guns whilst jumping sideways and yelling ah he totally is uh yeah it's it's delightful and the thing is that's a silly action movie trope but this is bishop of course that's what he does like i, I wonder if he just rolls around shattering furniture for no reason just traversing the x-mansion i mean he's, is he freaking jesse faden from control are no nearby shelving units safe from his proximity Correct. Basically, if you're Bishop, everything might as well be breakaway furniture. Yeah. But this is interesting, because it seems clear that Gateway is delaying this teleportation in time to give the X-Men a chance to stop him. 
So we're going to come back to that in a second, but somehow Beast and the rest of the gang independently conclude that the missing X-Men are being tested because Onslaught didn't kidnap everybody and clearly could have. Now, Beast's rationale also extends to which X-Men were, were kidnapped. Three of our four hand-plucked compatriots were energy manipulators, sir, with Wolverine presumably being tossed in for a tactile and sensory response and contrast. Okay, we know that Beast has been replaced by Dark Beast at this point, so is he trying to harm their mission by giving a completely nonsensical explanation? I mean, Gambit and Bishop are energy manipulators too, and why would you need Wolverine for tactile and sensory response? Everyone has senses, I guess his are better, but I mean, ah. Wolverines are super? I don't know. There's also a moment, by the way, when they're discussing the situation with Banshee, when they find out that Chamber just got dumped back on the lawn, where there is a coloring error and Storm is colored as Jean on the monitors. And they're talking about the four missing characters. I didn't know that. Well, that would make things even more confusing if I had noticed it. Anyway, as the fight hits its climax, Xavier is suddenly in some degree of telepathic contact with his X-Men. I would say because he's Onslaught. Uh, yes, whether that was intended or not, it's because he's Onslaught. Oh, something else we should mention is that a, a big glowing face appears at the mansion for no apparent reason. That's, that's a thing that happens in this issue. Perhaps it is the psionic being here at the mansion, allowing my mind access to the events taking place. Or perhaps it is something more visceral, more primal. But in this, the final moments of their battle, I can sense all four of my students. I can sense their determination, their absolute faith in one another. In the instant that Cyclops unleashes the full fury of his optic blasts into the opening Wolverine created in their enemy's armor, I am at last sure my X-Men are coming home. Now, as the missing X-Men teleport in, Gateway has a brief conversation with the psionic being um, and then addresses the X-Men. And he, he tells them they've survived this test, but barely. And now Onslaught is coming and there is no force on Earth strong enough to stop him. And the entity seems to think that Gateway is sort of responsible for testing them, is, is responsible for, for somehow preparing them and has told him as much. Gateway, you assured me these creatures were ready, that they could hold the last line of defense against the coming. You were wrong. They did survive, yet their performance was perfunctory at best. Damn, burn. Confusing burn. Okay, so... Uh, again, this entity wants to stop Onslaught because the entity is saying that, you know, these X-Men were hopefully going to be a last line of defense, but they suck. But Post is working for Onslaught. And Gateway, I assume, is working for Onslaught, and that's why he's trying to bring all these people to Onslaught. So is the entity supposed to be Onslaught, or is the entity separate from Onslaught? What's going on here? Well, the entity is bald, so there's that. I, I'm, I don't have a lot to work with here. Uh, give this to me. <laughs> the, the entity, so, so in the same sense that we can assume that Xavier's got this whole dark side he represses, 
we can also assume that he pretty regularly represses his better nature. And so maybe we've got sort of some thread of Xavier who's trying to figure out how to resist Onslaught, even as Xavier himself is, is simultaneously becoming Onslaught. You know, I actually really like that. So the devil on Charles Xavier's shoulder is basically beefy manga Magneto, and the angel on his shoulder is a rainbow CG bald face. Yeah. Okay. See, that's the thing. Like, a lot of this Onslaught stuff just isn't very well explained, and a lot of it also changes from issue to issue. But I feel like we can do this. I feel like we can make this make sense, and we can retroactively make this a story that we at least like more. I'm not going to call it a bad story because every story is somebody's favorite. I know there are a lot of folks that like Onslaught and that's awesome and I would never take that away, but but we need to make it even better. We need to make Onslaught as good as it can possibly be. The very pinnacle of the mid-1990s. Age of Apocalypse, you've got nothing on the new, improved Onslaught. While I process that, listeners, you've got questions. Chairface Chippendale asks on Tumblr, do you guys have favorite bits of convoluted continuity or other X-Men arcana to pull out at parties to give non-experts a sense of how singularly abstruse the world of Marvel's Merry Mutants can be? I have definitely done this with the Summers family, which is probably why I don't get invited to very many parties. Oh, Jesus, that Jay guy, he's going to tell us about Cable's dark future and Rachel Summers' dark future, which are different dark futures. In my defense, I only do that if people ask. <laughs> you just sort of, you know, get your foot in the door with, like, Madeline Pryor or whatever. Ouch. I have a bunch. I don't have anything as sort of uh, singularly impressive as the Summers family tree. If nothing else, that's your territory. I wouldn't want to tread on your toes. But I do like talking about Ilyana Rasputin. She has a legitimately awesome story that involves alternate dimensions and timelines, and stuff also gets real weird later on, and it's all stuff that delights me and that I have attempted to use to get people into X-Men, occasionally successfully. Sometimes there are little things like Colossus being related to that Rasputin. There's everything about Chuck Austin's Draco storyline and all the angel stuff that goes along with it, including the time that Warren Worthington had sex with a teenager in the sky above her mom. Oh boy, Chuck Austin's run. There's the fact that Cannonball was totally one of the immortal externals who come with their own big continuity explanation until he wasn't because the writers didn't want to deal with it anymore, which is also a fun way to talk about the way X-Men are constructed. This is this is also a place where I feel like I have I have a significant advantage because as we've mentioned, I write the cold opens, so I, I'm just sort of an encyclopedia of weird, weird Marvel shit at this point. But, but there's so much of it, in fact, some of which, I, in fact, I think everything else I'm about to talk about you've used in Cold Opens before. There's Wolverine and Sabretooth's rivalry being based on an ancient rivalry between cat and wolf people. There's the fact that X-Man's Madeline Pryor ghost is really an evil Jean Grey from, from another dimension. There's Wolfsbane's son Tyr being the prize in the Hell on Earth war and Guido eventually killing Tyr to prevent all the devils from taking over. There's the longshot Shatterstar relationship. There's so much good stuff, listeners. So much glorious, maddening, delightful continuity. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Why do you think Dark Beast, Holocaust, Nate Grey, and Sugar Man were the only characters to be brought over from the Age of Apocalypse? Do you think the writers wanted to use them, or were they simply more popular with fans? 
So, of those four characters, I have one answer I know to be true, and three that I'll do my best. As far as X-Men, the X-Men series was selling ridiculously well during Age of Apocalypse, in an era where comics were already selling really, really well. So, it was money on the table, I think they would have been capitalistically foolish to not continue that one. As far as the speculation, I don't know, I'm curious about your take on these as well, Jay. So, I don't, Dark Beast, what do you think? He's a fun character. I think he's a character who works and contrasts with his 616 antecedent better than most of the Age of Apocalypse characters would. Agreed, yeah. I think there are some clear storytelling opportunities when you have two different versions of a character that share core traits, but one is mostly a good guy and one is super not a good guy. For Holocaust, I do know that Marvel was planning to use Holocaust in the 616 for a while, even before the Age of Apocalypse was announced. We saw Holocaust in Strife's Strike File, aka Strife's Burn Book, with a very different appearance. So I guess they figured, well, we ended up using him in a different dimension, but we kinda had plans for him in the 616, so why not? And Sugarman, Man, Sugarman is weird. Yeah, I don't know why they brought Sugar Man over. Like, he was a cool, creepy villain in Generation Next, but he was so specific to that setting, like that creepy labor camp, slave pit hellscape. And so to bring him into the 616 and then change almost everything about him aside from his appearance is a weird freaking move. Yeah, he's a bizarre choice. He's a bizarre a lot of things. You know what else is bizarre? That we're somehow fully listener-supported. And certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Do you hunt for meaning, Tyler Short? Do you delve into the chaos of life, searching for patterns, for clear answers to the tangled dilemmas the universe poses? <laughs> Good luck, Buster. Dave Metz tried that, too. We've all seen where that fiasco landed. And the microphone here goes to the Herald of Onslaught himself, Post. You have discovered me, children, and sooner than my calculations would have predicted. But that in no way changes the predicaments in which you have found yourselves with no memory of how you arrived. Erwin Dolabowski. The last thing you remember is retiring to your room at the Xavier Institute after a long day of training in the Danger Room. But now, you are acting in a play you have never heard of, and you have not read the script. Can you fake an understanding of the story well enough for your ignorance to remain unnoticed? Or will your crush in the first row see through your deception and lose all respect for you forever? Onslaught must know your every strength and weakness. Damien Schaefer. It was a quiet night of brooding in shorts on the roof of the X-Mansion. And now? Now you're back in high school taking a final exam, and you've just realized you didn't study. In fact, you've never attended a single class for this course. Can you somehow figure out an advanced topic under duress, or will your entire future be dashed upon the rocks? Onslaught watches closely as you struggle. And now, you realize the most fiendish part of Onslaught's evaluation? Neither of you is wearing pants. And with that... 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for episode art as well as visual companions to every episode. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free as we improve Onslaught, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, in homage to this season's next catastrophic plague, we're looking at the X-Men Brood miniseries. (laughs) 